Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah is left of the Psalms. So yeah, we'll be moving in 15 days. Crazy. I don't know about going back to Egypt, but... (laughs) Right on. We're going to be looking in chapter 4 of Nehemiah at verse uh, 1 to 15 this morning. So let's read that. I'm reading out of New King James, so bear with me. But it so happened when Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren in the army of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside himself. And he said, Whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he will break it down, their stone wall. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you. For they have provoked you to anger before the builders. So we built the wall and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height for the people had a mind to work. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed that he became very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and to create confusion. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God And because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. Then Judah said, The strength of the laborers is failing, and there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. And our adversaries said, They will neither know nor see anything till we come into the midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. So it was. When the Jews who dwelt near came, they told us ten times, From whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. Therefore I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall. At the openings I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked, and I arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. And it happened. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. Jesus, 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 we love you and we want to be more like you. God, we love the work that you're doing in our lives. We love, Lord, as we've been learning about victory. We love that work in our lives. Jesus, I pray that you would equip us today by your word to know and to come against and resist the attacks from our adversary, the devil. Jesus, we want to be that fortified wall, that fortified city where the enemy doesn't have access, the enemy doesn't uh, come and go as he pleases. So God, we pray by your Holy Spirit, equip us today. Equip your saints, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the work you're doing. It is your work and it is a good work. Thank you that you have begun the work in our lives and you will be faithful to complete it. And so, Lord, make us more like you as we leave here today. Jesus, we lift up our pastor and we just pray that your blessing upon him, 
Lord, just uh, uh, strengthen their marriage. Jesus, just give them a, a time of refreshment, Jesus. Thank you, God. Bless your people today. Bless us with your presence, Lord. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a story uh, of an old pastor, uh, and uh, he uh, was out on a Saturday, and uh, as his favorite thing was to do, was to go to yard sales. And he happened upon one yard sale, and it was pretty unique because it was uh, the devil, and he was having a yard sale. And uh, so as he was, you know, perusing the different items that were there, you know, he saw all the different tools uh, that were available that the enemy had for sale. And so as he looked, he saw, you know, uh, shiny uh, instruments, lust and pride and these different kinds of things. And, and he's looking through and looking at the price tags. And then he sees one and it's off to the side and it's very well used, very well beaten up. It's, uh, you know, nothing to look at. Very well worn and seasoned. And so he asked the enemy, because there's no price tag on it, he asked the devil and he says, um, well, uh, is this one for sale? And he says, oh, no, 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 that one, that one I'm not selling. And he says, well, what is it? He says, well, that's perhaps my greatest tool. He says, it can make the mightiest saint stop in his tracks. It can make the weakest saint continue to be weak. No, there's no way I'll give that one up. And he says, well, please tell me, please tell me what is this tool? What is this tool? And the devil looks at him and he says, I'm surprised you don't recognize it. That tool is none other than discouragement. Discouragement. It's the tool of discouragement. As we've been making, making progress, applying the lessons from the book of Joshua in our lives, surely the enemy rises to oppose that progress. And as we've been talking about victory, as we've been learning that we have the victory, the victory has been won for us, surely the enemy, as he sees that progress being made, opposes that work and comes against that work. There's a line from that hymn, A Mighty Fortress of our, is Our God, and it says, For still our foe doth seek to work us woe. And there, even though we can be walking in the victory, we can be walking in the Spirit, the enemy doesn't turn his back and say, Okay, let, let him go for it. But that he still continues to seek our woe. He can still continues to seek our destruction. We see an incredible picture of that opposition in the book of Nehemiah. What we'll see as we take a look at is that here was a people, Jerusalem, and they were in a dire state. Their walls uh, were rubbish. Uh, they were uh, torn down. Their temple had been rebuilt. But here, the enemy could come and go as he pleases. Uh, he had access and authority uh, over them in their lives. They lived in fear. They lived in discouragement. And so Nehemiah sees this and he sets a plan in motion to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And as soon as that rebuilding process starts, as soon as walls start to go up, that says the enemy has no longer access to the people of God. The enemy uses every tactic to oppose it. And Nehemiah is an incredible book of the Bible because you see all the tactics through chapters uh, uh, 2 to 6 that the enemy will use to stop God's work in your life. And you see how Nehemiah dealt with those things. And, Nehemiah, and, and the Lord is doing an incredible work in our lives. And He's doing an incredible work in this church and as a body of believers. And He desires to continue to do it. But on top of that, the Lord also has a work for each and every single one of us to do. And I hope that we all understand that this morning. 
Uh, in Ephesians 4, 11 to 12, it says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And so something we take very seriously here at Reality uh, as pastors is to see you equipped Yes, to build up the church, but also for the work of the ministry. Sometimes people come and they say, well, you're in full-time ministry. And my comment's always, well, so are you. So are you. And here, my role is just simply different. My role is to equip you for your ministry. You see, we all, God has all put us in places where we have a, have, a, have a sphere of influence. A sphere of influence to impact for time and eternity. It may be your school. It may be your college. It may be your job. It may be your home. Your neighborhood. But God has given you that work to do. And God desires that you do that work and that you be equipped. And so Satan will come against our work for the Lord by coming against God's work in our lives. Christian life in the New Testament is pictured as a race and a walk. It's pictured as this thing that's always to be moving forward. There's always to be forward movement. There's always to be this progress to keep running. Don't grow weary. Keep walking. But the enemy, his goal is to make us sit down. Is to make us stop. Is to make us abandon the work. To make us abandon the work in our lives and the work that God has laid out for us to do. The enemy as it's been said, is wholly content to do nothing to those saints who are wholly content to do nothing. The enemy doesn't much bother them. They're not a threat. But once you start applying God's Word, once you start walking in the Spirit and yielding to the process of being made more and more like Jesus, the fallen legions of hell descend and you are made the bullseye of the enemy. Second Corinthians 2.11 says, um, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, by the enemy, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. And so the Bible clearly teaches throughout the schemes of the enemy, those things which the enemy uses to get the work to cease in our lives, to get us to abandon the work. And I believe Perhaps discouragement is one of the enemy's greatest schemes against the work of God in our lives. It is one of the chief devices the enemy uses to oppose the work of God and perhaps to stop that work in our lives. And so we see the attack of discouragement. We see that it comes in many forms in the book of Nehemiah in chapter 4 in verses 1 to 15. And it comes in many, many different kinds of ways. This attack, this tool, this scheme of discouragement. There's a man by the name of Paul Sasso. And he, uh, in 1986, ran across America, jogged, ran the whole way. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, one of the first to do so. So upon, you know, from, from ocean to ocean, upon completing his quest, he was being interviewed, and they asked him, they said, um, you know, did you ever think about giving up? And he said, oh, absolutely, absolutely. I thought about giving up. He said, but it, it wouldn't be the thing that you would think. He said it wasn't the Rockies and the snow and the chilling weather. It wasn't the desert stretches where it was long and exhausting and, and the heat was uh, uh, unbearable. And they said, well, 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 tell us, if it wasn't those things, what was it? He said, it was the sand in my shoes. It was the sand in my shoes. 
And so discouragement can come in many different forms in many different ways. It can be that outright opposition, but it can also become the steady growing, that sand in our shoes, that grating thing in our lives that keeps pounding and pounding and pounding away, saying, uh, you're going to fail, you're not going to make it, what's the use, what's the point? And so how does Nehemiah deal with these things? A, a little background to Nehemiah. Uh, some 1,000 years after the time of Joshua, and so we've been studying the book of Joshua, this is a, uh, about 1,000 years later, and some 400 years before the birth of Jesus, the nation of Israel and the Jewish people were in a desperate state. Their nations were destroyed, first the northern Jewish kingdom of Israel, then the southern Jewish kingdom of Judah. The city of Jerusalem was completely conquered by the Babylonians, and the once glorious temple of Solomon was destroyed After 70 years of captivity in Babylon, they were given the opportunity to return to their homeland, the promised land, Uh, but unfortunately out of some 2 to 3 million exiled Jews at that time, only 50,000 decided to return to the promised land. But God has His remnant and and those did return. In the days of Ezra... Uh, uh, they rebuilt the temple and laid a spiritual foundation in Israel once again. Uh, for 150 years, the walls of Jerusalem lay in ruins. Uh, there had been attempts, it's very important to realize, there had been attempts to rebuild the walls. Uh, in the book of Ezra 4.4, 4, we see, then the people of the land, talking about building the walls, uh, the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building. And so the great scheme of the enemy discouragement works in Ezra. It stops the progress. It stops the work on the wall. And so the enemy will attempt the same scheme, the same tactic, uh, 15 years later. 15 years after the book of Ezra, Nehemiah, the cupbearer, uh, to Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. He's the cupbearer. He's uh, 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 in this uh, royal palace. Uh, he hears uh, of Jerusalem's condition. He hears that the people uh, are in a horrible place that the, the, the walls are still burnt down, that nothing's happening, nothing's going on, and his heart breaks and he weeps. He just weeps and he prays and he says, Lord, if you would use me, I'll do it. And so as he's before the king one day, the king notices his countenance and says, why are you sad in my presence? And it says that he threw a prayer up to God and he told the king his plan. He asked permission to go to rebuild the walls. God gave him favor with the king. The king gave him uh, letters. He gave him uh, the lim- uh, uh, lumber and uh, timber and everything that he needed to rebuild. He gave him an escort uh, to uh, uh, go to Jerusalem. And so he gets to Jerusalem. The first thing he does, he doesn't tell anybody about his plan, but he rides around the city walls assessing the situation in the night. And then in chapter 3, we see the, uh, he, he gets the people together and the work starts. The work of God and rebuilding the wall starts and it's so awesome because he grabs perfumers, uh, people who made perfume, they're working next to stonemasons and blacksmiths and those who dyed you know, uh, 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 cloth, everybody worked everybody worked together in the same common goal for God's work and so the work started out, alright we're doing it, there's excitement and everything but now we pick up the story and we pick it up in uh, chapter 4. Uh, interesting to note, Nehemiah, his name means the Lord comforts and is a striking picture of our comforter, the Holy Spirit. In John 16, uh, 7, it says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. And speaking of the Holy Spirit, he says, For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, 
I will send him unto you. And so we have this beautiful picture, and he's an uh, amazing picture of the Holy Spirit as he rebuilds the walls. He's not simply rebuilding the walls, he's rebuilding the people. Because revival will break out as those gaps are closed, as those walls come together, as there's that security, as the enemy no longer has a place, a foothold in their life. And he's a beautiful picture and a type of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit does the same thing in our lives. He gets rid of that rubbish. He gets rid of the enemy and those footholds and he makes us more like Jesus. He makes us more and more like Jesus. Notice with me in chapter 4, three tactics toward discouragement. Three tactics toward discouragement. The first tactic that's used we see in verses 1 to 6, and that tactic is the tactic of ridicule. Ridicule, that mockery, that making fun of. Notice uh, in verse uh, 1, it says, But it so happened when Sambalot heard that we were rebuilding the wall that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. Now Sambalot and Tobiah, these are the main enemy characters on the scene. They've, uh, Sambalot's thought to be the governor of Samaria at this time. And so here they are, they've had influence uh, with these Jewish people, these people who were captives, exiled, they've been taking advantage of them, and, uh, and they didn't want to lose that influence in uh, uh, their lives. And so uh, uh, they come against them, and they come against them, and they start with the tactic of ridicule. Ridicule, uh, the definition of it, is words or actions intended to evoke contemptuous laughter at or feelings toward a person or a thing. In chapter 2, before the work even starts, Sambalot and Tobiah, uh, they mock the work of God, but here they turn to mocking the workers of God. And so here, uh, in chapter 2, they mock God's work, it's, and they're mocking Him, but now they get a little more personal and they begin to mock the workers of God. Uh, in verse 1, notice with me, it says that he, was very, uh, that he was furious. That word there means to burn or to light a fire, to light on fire. And so basically he was like a human torch. He just, there was something in him, he was so upset at this. It wasn't like, oh dear me, oh, they're building the wall again, oh, oh, troubling, you know, kind of a thing. But he was very, very upset, very angry there. That word means emotionally distressed. And I wonder at our enemy, our adversary, the devil, how he reacts to the Lord's work in our lives. And I hope he's angry. Right? Right? And so, notice he mocks. He mocked at the end of verse 1 there. Thomas Carlyle called ridicule the language of the devil. He called it the language of the devil. Somebody once said, some people who can't stand bravely when they are shot at will collapse when they're laughed at. And isn't that true? So often we hear, oh, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. That is just insane. Because words can hurt you in a place that sticks and stones can never get to. Because they can break your spirit. And uh, they can break your heart. Um, Laughing and mocking are the easiest ways to oppose someone. Have you ever been mocked for being a Christian? Have you, have you ever been ashamed of the gospel, maybe? Have you ever been in that place where you bust open your Bible at work, you know, for, on lunchtime, and somebody comes in and, ah, what is that? You know. You're like, uh. Have you ever been mocked, though? 
Have you ever been mocked by people because of what you believe? Because you believe that God created the world? And as the world gets darker, so the voices uh, of opposition and mockery will grow louder. But I think, crazily, um, the one who mocks the most is the enemy himself. Don't we hear, hey, you're going to fail. How could God love you? You living in victory? LOL. And the enemy mocks us. And the enemy laughs at us. It's been amazing as uh, Stockton gets closer in the church plant. I know the opposition. I know there's going to be opposition. That place has been under the enemy's control for a long time. And he doesn't want to give it up. But it's amazing to me how the enemy can lay it on thick. And every time I stumble in a day, Every time I make a mistake or I sin, a bullhorn in my ear, the enemy says, you're going to fail. You're going to fail. Why do it? Look at you. You can't even live in victory. You can't even live in victory. And I wonder, I wonder maybe some of us, as we've been studying victory, perhaps uh, we haven't been having so much victory. Perhaps it can be discouraging to us because we think, well, Everybody else seems to be getting along fine. But I'm a special case. God made a mistake with me. I'm going to fail. I'm going to fail. Notice the jabs that he makes. Notice the jabs that he makes in verse 2. He says, And he spoke before his brethren in the army of Samaria, and he said, What are these feeble Jews doing? And he says, They're feeble. They're weak. Notice next he says, Will they fortify themselves? Are, are they going to build a wall? I mean, uh, what are they doing? I mean, that's not a wall, you know. Uh, they, do you even know how to build a wall? Isn't that a perfumer over there? You know, kind of a thing. And so they're, they're mocking them. He says, uh, will they offer sacrifices? And, and what he's saying there is he's saying, is God going to help you? I don't see him. I don't see him helping you. I, I don't see him around. Where's your God? Didn't God just allow Babylon to take you captive? What are you doing? Thinking that he's with you. And so then they say, well, they complete it in a day. And uh, here they had already been working for a while on it. And, uh, and, and, and so they're saying, what? Can it be completed in a day? And then notice he says, will they revive the stones from the heap of rubbish, stones that are burned? And uh, in that day, in, uh, in that culture, uh, stones that had been burned with fire were thought to have, be, have been cursed. And so he's saying, uh, are you going to use these cursed things? This is a curse. There's no way it's going to happen. Not only is God not with you, but the circumstances are against you. And so he uh, uh, uses these digs against them. Um, Like most attacks of discouragement, there is a trace of truth in the words of the enemy. As builders, the Jews were feeble. Uh, They wouldn't complete it in a day, and they didn't have the best materials to work with. A lying, discouraging attack will often have some truth in it, but will neglect the great truth. And this is the great truth. That is exactly the material that God uses. That is exactly the material that God uses. Notice with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26-27, to 27, it says, For consider your calling, brethren, 
that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Praise the Lord Jesus for that. Hallelujah. And so then we see in verse 3, Tobiah's joke. And he just thought he was the funniest guy. Notice verse 3, it says, Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside himself. That means he was laughing so hard he could hardly talk. And uh, he says, Whatever they build, if even a fox goes on it, it will break down their stone wall. And he's just cracking up on it. But he made a, a very serious mistake. Notice what he says. He says, Whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. He made a mistake because it wasn't their wall and it wasn't their work. It was God's wall and it was His work. And you guys, God is working in your lives. And sometimes we live in this world, in this day and age, on this pass and fail system. We learned it in school, right? Happy face, yay, star, yay. You know, frown, sad, you're not, you know, pass and fail kind of a thing. You guys, God's work is going to be completed. He's going to do it. He's going to make you more like Himself. And praise the Lord Jesus, it's largely not dependent on us. You see, He uses those weak and those foolish things. What's Nehemiah's response to this? And so here are these guys, and, and you have to understand, he brought an army with him. Sambalot brought his army. And they stand there and all these guys are laughing at them, mocking. Here the workers are working and, you know, and, and now they just mock the people openly. And, and, and what's his response? What does Nehemiah do uh, uh, to this as all these people hear this response? And I love, I love, I love his response. Nehemiah is effective in what he doesn't say is in what he does say. He doesn't say anything to them. Like they never even were there. He doesn't talk trash back to them. Here they are talking trash. He doesn't talk trash back to them. Now, I like to game. I like to uh, play games online. And it's fun. And I play with people, you know, uh, uh, all over the country, sometimes all over the world. Now, one of the deals, though, is, you know, you wear a headset so you can communicate. And, you know, you're, you're talking and you're doing your different kind of thing and, and uh, uh, go over here, go, you know, kind of a thing. But, but one of the things that can happen is, is, is uh, a lot of trash talk. Um, and, and people like to trash talk. And, and you know, one thing I've found is, uh, uh, you know, they like to trash talk you and everything. And as a Christian, uh, trash talk and, and being a Christian is kind of an oxymoron, you know. I mean, what can you say, really? You know, you doggone hillbilly man, you know. <laughs> you know, there's just like crickets at the other, you know. There's just this, ee, ee, you know, silence and everybody's like, uh, kind of a thing. But one of the cool things that you can do, one of the cool things that I've learned in the process is you just unplug it. You just pull it out. And you're done. The game doesn't change. You just don't hear that voice. You just go on. You keep with the work. And that's what he does is you just unplug. Hear the enemy. He'll always mock. And he'll always do that. But he just unplugs from it. Uh, Revelation 12.10 calls uh, uh, Satan the, the great trash talker. This is that he's the accuser of the brethren. He is the accuser of the brethren and he accuses us before the Lord night and day. 
and he talks trash about us to God. He's the accuser of the brethren. But, uh, you know, uh, here Nehemiah prays to the Lord. He goes to the Lord in prayer. And uh, Nehemiah prays basically, in essence, and uh, he says, Lord, if I was you, I'd get these guys. And he asks the Lord to fight his enemies. He says, Lord, if I was you, this is how I'd do it, but you're the Lord, you do it. Somebody once said, notice that he goes to the Lord, when you're flat on your back, all you have to do is roll over and you're on your face. Praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord for that. Nehemiah understood that he belonged to the only armory on earth where the soldiers fight their battles on their knees. William Cooper said, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. And I think Nehemiah had some understanding of Ephesians 6.12. It says, For we struggle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness and heavenly places. And so uh, he knew that Nehemiah didn't allow himself to get detoured from his work by taking time to reply to their words. He prayed, he realized that, you know what, there's something behind this more than the flesh and blood that we see, and we have to be careful as people, when people mock us, not to get into that realm. Something my dad said, he said, you know, there are some fights that even if you win, you lose because they're held in Satan's ring. And uh, just being there makes you a loser. And one of them is arguing and to, uh, uh, and to trash talk and get angry and to go back and forth and, and, the, and that and that. It, it, even if you win and you walk away, wow, I sure, I sure showed him, you know, kind of, you've lost. And Nehemiah understands that, hey, there's something more behind this. And we have to understand as Christians, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. It's not our boss, it's not our neighbor who wants the you know, tree branches cut not over encroaching on his lawn, you know, who's taking you to court or whatever. But it's a battle against the principalities and powers. That's where our war, that's where our battle, that's where our talking happens, is on our knees. And so... Notice the people had a mind to work in verse 6. It says, uh, so we built the wall, the entire wall was joined together up to half its height for the people had a mind to work. Now this is so awesome. Uh, Because Nehemiah and the workers had legal protection from the king, Sambalot Tobiah had no authority to actually stop the work. All they could do was try to discourage the Jews into stopping. So they didn't have the authority to make and go, hey, you guys can't do that, you know, you're violating the king. Nehemiah had the letters. Hey, the king told us we could do this. In fact, he gave us the lumber and everything to do it. Um, And the exact same uh, attack uh, comes into the life of the believer, doesn't it? Who is legally set free by his king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, yet can be discouraged into drawing back uh, what is set before them. And so we've all been set free if you're believers today. If you know Jesus and He's your Lord and your Savior, you've been born again. He's your King. He set you free. And the enemy doesn't have that kind of authority to make you stop the work. But what he does is attempt to discourage. Isn't it interesting? Because we work differently under faith or under discouragement. We read and we hear the word differently under faith or under discouragement. Uh, And Satan works so hard to keep us from faith and to keep us in discouragement. And so uh, uh, it's such a huge thing, it's such a huge scheme and tactic to him because our perspective is totally different when we're walking by faith than it is when we're discouraged. We're almost two different people at times, isn't it? When our eyes are fixed on Jesus, we're just walking on the water. When we're discouraged, all we can see is the waves and the drowning and the... oh. 
kind of a deal. The mind of work is exactly what Satan wants to destroy when he attacks. He wants to make us feel defeated or passive or self-focused or discouraged. And he wants to come against that mind of work. What is the mind of work? How does that apply to us? To do and to be faithful what God has given us to do every day of our lives until heaven comes. That is the mind of work. To see that, that you know what, we're not just here uh, to live out our lives, to gather a lot of things and then uh, heaven's fire insurance, you know, kind of a thing. But a mind to work is to see that God has a reason and a purpose and a plan that we're still here on this earth. And that every single one of you as a believer has been entrusted with the precious gospel to carry out into all the worlds, to make disciples, to see people converted, to be those, those lights in the place uh, of influence. Uh, so uh, next we see uh, his second tactic. And his second tactic toward discouragement is intimidation and confusion. Notice with me in verse 7 it says, Now it happened when Sambalot, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and that the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry. And so, here again, they are upset. The, their, their mockery didn't work. And so, now, what do they do in verse 8? And all of them conspire together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. And so now, they come together and they say, okay, the only way we can do this is, is to attack. We've got to attack them. We've got to stop it. The wall's going up. The wall's been joined up to half its height. The gaps are starting to be closed. We're losing our foothold. We've got to do something. And it's amazing to me. Notice how the common goal of coming against God's work unites the enemies. Those enemies were always fighting each other. And it's funny how God's people have a hard time uniting to do God's work at times. But it's funny how, uh, uh, and even crazy, how the enemy of God and, and God's enemies unite to come against God's work. And so they all unite together. And the city was now completely surrounded, you guys. Uh, to the north was Sambalot and the Samaritans. To the east was Tobiah and the Ammonites. To the south, uh, Geshem and the Arabs. And to the west, the Ashdodites. They had soldiers more advanced. They had uh, better tactics. They had uh, uh, better weapons. You remember, the Jews were in Babylon. And in Babylon, uh, you know, they don't teach the captives, the exiles, how to fight. And so here they are, and, and they're outnumbered. And, uh, 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 and now they're surrounded now they're surrounded. They were surrounded and the wall wasn't big enough. It wasn't big enough yet. It was like the worst time. No, 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 just give us a couple more weeks, then come and fight. But now the enemy is surrounding them. They see them, they can see their faces. And here they are and they're just watching. And their hearts begin to beat in their chest. And here they are trying as quick as they can to build this wall, but still there's gaps and it's not high enough. They can still get over it. They can still climb over it. They still have access. Satan loves to intimidate because he doesn't have to do anything. And he loves to give that, that, that intimidation, here I am, because he doesn't have to do anything. Remember in the book of Job, Satan had to ask permission to touch Job? But with intimidation, he doesn't have to ask that permission because he just does what he does. I remember watching when I was a kid this nature special and, and it was about lions and just how lions hunt and do the different things. And, and, and we all know pretty much that, that the female lion is the one that hunts and gets the food. 
Uh, but when that old male lion, he gets old and he's, and he's uh, almost useless, uh, he, he, he is still useful for something. And that's his roar. So what they'll do a lot of times is the lion will get set up and, and uh, uh, you know, that male lion and uh, the female will be behind. And so that lion will roar, the prey runs the other direction, it runs from the roar and right into the hands of those lions. And so I think is our enemy who talks about as a roaring lion. He doesn't have much in our lives, much more than a roar. And so much of the time that roar can be loud, it can be freaky, and we can be intimidated. We can be intimidated as we see and we look at this world. We see the darkness, and sometimes we feel like the dark, it's too much. There's too much going on. How can you know, God move in this? How can He work? The temptation's all around. We can get claustrophobic to everything around us. Sin is everywhere kind of a thing. And the lion roars and the temptation is to stop the work, is to run the other direction. But to run the other direction is to fall into the hands of the enemy. It's exactly what he wants us to do. So what does Nehemiah do? What does Nehemiah do? Um, Notice with me in verse 9. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God and because of them we set a watch against them day and night. And so what he does is he takes... And these people who are going to have this tendency to run the other direction, he says, no, don't you turn your backs on the enemy. You face them. You face them. You face them. They're staring at you, looking down. You stare them back. You stare them back. And so they pray to the Lord and they set a watch. And Nehemiah is always going to the Lord in prayer. And I simply ask you this question, and I ask myself this question, do we pray? Do we pray? Do we pray? Do we pray? Is it our lifestyle? Is it the breath of the Christian to pray? I heard a story once about a praying mantis and a fly. And this praying mantis is sitting there and a fly comes up and asks him and he says, what are you doing? And the praying mantis says, well, I'm praying. And the fly says, don't be ridiculous, you know, we're insects. And all of a sudden the praying man <laughs> grabs it and the fly's like, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. <laughs> but I think sometimes, sadly, we can be like that as God's people when those times of crisis come, then we're a praying people. But Nehemiah always prayed. Nehemiah always prayed and he made it uh, uh, his habit and his lifestyle to pray. They set a watch. Uh, they faced the enemy. No, uh, notice in Mark 14, 38, uh, Jesus speaking says uh, these things essentially. He says, keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Keep watching and praying. When we see an area of our Christian life that needs particular attention, it isn't enough to pray. You need to set a watch as well. Give special attention and accountability to that area of your life until you're walking in constant victory. And it is a wise thing to look and to say, this is what a weak area of my life is. I need to watch this area. This is an area where I fall. And so whatever gets me to this area, whatever bridge I cross to get here needs to be burned up. It needs to be burned up. So I never get there in the first place. And so many Christians fall into temptation because they haven't been watching where they are walking. And there are some places in this world a Christian isn't supposed to be. They're just not supposed to be there. 
You know, uh, uh, the promise is that the Lord will never give us a temptation too great and He always makes a way of escape. Do you guys know that sometimes the way of escape is not even being there in the first place? Our prayers do not replace our actions. They make our actions effective for God's work. And so they prayed and they set a watch. And notice that Nehemiah is rubbing off on the people now. First it was I prayed and now it's we prayed. So he's rubbing off on the people. Notice the next tactic, and that's the tactic of fear in verse 10 to 15. In verse 10 it says, Then Judah said, The strength of the laborers is failing, and there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. And so finally discouragement has hit. And discouragement uh, uh, go hand in hand with fear, and it will begin to run rampant. It's exciting to start a project, isn't it? It's exciting to finish a project, isn't it? So you get the excitement at both ends. It's exciting to start something. It's exciting to finish something. Yeah, kind of a thing. But what is the hardest part? The hardest part is that middle. And now the wall is done middle. And now uh, uh, look at what they say. They say the strength of the laborers is failing. And there is so much rubbish that we're not able to build. In essence, they were saying, we've gotten all the little rocks. We've gotten everything. and We're going for it. But now it's the big stuff. Now it's the big stuff. And now there's so much trash that's been accumulated. Now all this has to go. We're weary. We're tired. We've been doing it. Is it even helping? And the amazing thing that they could say is they could look and they could, they could say, man, the very wall that we are building is that which is making the enemy come against us. Is it worth it to keep building? Because if we weren't building, the enemy would be doing his thing and we'd live just like we were doing. Yeah, we were still in bondage. Yeah, the enemy still had a place and authority in our life. But it seems like this building is making matters worse because now they're going to come against us. They're going to try to kill us. And so they grow weary and discouragement sets in in the people's heart. It takes hold. And it's like that discouragement that you can almost taste. And here they are and it's like it's not making any difference. It doesn't really, it's not doing anything. And smaller stones are cleared now. It's the rubbish and the bigger stones. No matter how bold you guys, how strong, how on fire for the Lord, at one point or another, you will face discouragement. You will face discouragement. Remember Elijah? Elijah, if you guys, you guys who are going to Israel, you get to stand on Mount Carmel where this happened, where Elijah battles with the priests of Baal, and he calls down fire from heaven. The Lord consumes it, wood, rocks, dust, water, everything gone. The priests of Baal are shown to be these false prophets, you know, kind of a thing, such a tremendous victory. The next day Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you, Elijah, and he runs for his life, and he gets so discouraged that he says, God, just take my life, just take my life. I'm the only one left. I'm the only one left. No matter how strong discouragement will come against. I remember hearing a story about Martin Luther Martin Luther was in a deep depression and one morning his wise wife came downstairs. She was dressed all in black and she had a veil over her face. And he said, my goodness, woman, who died? She looked at him very seriously and she said, well, God did. He was taken back and he said, how dare you say such a thing? And she said, my dear Martin, by the way you've been living the past couple of weeks, he must have died. And it snapped them out of it. Snapped them out of it. But even God's, you know, the heroes of the Bible, they face discouragement. They face discouragement. And we will face discouragement. What the enemy often does is to take all our zeal and passion for Jesus and use it against us. It's like this. If I was in a marathon, okay? And um, that would be funny in and of it itself. But... <laughs> 
So I'm in a marathon and I'm going to run. Basically, if I get last place, I'm cool with that. I mean, I just want to complete it. You know, roll me over the finish line kind of a thing. And, uh, but for the person who's trained a year, they've eaten. You know, they breathe it, they love it, they run every day, they special diet, you know, and all these special drinks they're eating, they're doing the rocky thing, all the raw eggs and everything, you know, and, and everything. It's they're running, and they're leading, and they trip right before the finish line. And everybody else passes them up. How much more discouraging is it for that person? And so too, with those who love Jesus, who want to follow Him, who want to do His work, who want to be about His business, Isn't it that way? Yes, you want so badly to do the work of God, but when you fall, it's like the enemy just boom. And and he can use that zeal and that passion that we have for Jesus against us. And it's a reminder that passion for the Lord is in a defense against discouragement. And so, uh, 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 so we hit these mountains and valleys in the Christian life. And the mountains are so nice, aren't they? The mountaintops, it's sunny, the birds are chirping, you know, you've got the bluebird of happiness on your shoulder singing you a song. You know, it's just this wonderful time and then you go into the valley of shadow of death, the bluebird dies, you know, kind of a thing. And, and you are like, uh, you scream out and you're like, God, just show me that you're here. God, be here. And all you hear is an echo. All you hear is an echo and we have those valleys that we hit, but we have to remember that God is with us. And so, uh, uh, so often what can cause discouragement is the thought that what I'm doing isn't making any difference at all. It's not making any difference at all. Another tactic that uh, causes discouragement is unmet expectations. And I picture these Jews here and I picture them building and I think as they see the enemy that surrounded them, as they hear about the threats, as they hear about their opposition, uh, I picture them looking and, uh, and saying, what about the pillar of fire? What about the angel of the Lord who destroyed all those enemies in one night? Where's the Lord? Why isn't He giving us the strength of Samson to build this wall faster? And perhaps they had unmet expectations and so too we, we have to be careful of our expectations as we say, God, why didn't you work this way? God, why didn't you heal this? God, why didn't you heal me? God, why haven't you worked this way? Why haven't you done this? Why haven't you provided here? And discouragement can happen because we try to figure out God and God cannot be figured out because His ways are high above our ways. So we have to guard against that. And so... Uh, notice that uh, this discouragement leads to a fearful people. And we're almost done. It says in verse 11, Our adversaries said they will neither know or see anything till we come into the midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came and they told us ten times, and that, that, that phrase there ten times just means they told us a lot. Uh, From whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. Therefore I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall, at the openings, and I set people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And so the next thing is now they hear, and the message that they hear is that the enemy isn't just coming to attack them, but he's coming to kill them. It's kind of a backhanded compliment. The only thing the enemy realizes at this point to stop the workers from working is to kill them. I wonder if that can be said about us. I wonder when our, the marching orders go out against us. Is it like, oh, just give Josh, you know, shake a Twinkie in front of him, you know, kind of a thing. Or is it like, destroy him at whatever the cost. Stop him. 
no matter what, you have full resources to do so. So the enemy is going to come in and they're going to kill. Uh, and so um, notice that uh, the enemy must have now thought, they saw the discouraged people, they get reports back, they know that Israel is discouragement, and they know that this is the opportune time to make victory possible. And so is the enemy. He just pounds us, doesn't he? Uh, fear is the brother of courage and the brother of unbelief. And what do I mean by that? Well, it's been said that courage isn't the absence of fear, but it's doing uh, 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 what's right uh, despite the fear. And so that you have this fine line, but, courage, uh, but fear is also the brother of unbelief. Uh, the fear that, God, uh, that these people dealt with and that these people had was that God wouldn't be there, that the work depended on them, that the enemy was greater than God. And they had been in the same place uh, uh, years, a uh, thousand years before at Kadesh Barnea. Notice in Numbers 32, 9, it says, For when they went up, and they're talking about the spies who gave the bad report, for when they went up to the valley of Eshcol and saw the land, they discouraged the sons of Israel so they did not go into the land which God had given them because of that fear that God wouldn't deliver them, that God didn't have a good purpose for them. And fear can come at us in, in, in many ways, can it? We can have the fear of being alone, the fear about what people will think of me, the fear of failure, the fear uh, for the ones that you love. If I do this thing for the Lord, what about the people I love? What about the people that I'm providing for? So the work in this state and at this time is in its most danger of stopping. It's the most desperate hour. The people are about to stop. They've been in this place before. The work has ceased before. And now they're about to stop. And Nehemiah, that picture of the Holy Spirit, grabs a hold of the reins. And let's see his response. Notice his response in verse 13. So, I, therefore, I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings, and I set people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows it was time to get serious, to put on the full armor and to get ready to fight with every resource they had. The challenge was great, but there was no reason to fear. First John 4, 4 says, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We must observe exactly where others are under attack and stand in the gap for them. And so remember, first as they looked, they were to see uh, where there was uh, uh, you know, vulnerabilities in their own lives. But now Nehemiah positions the uh, soldiers where their vulnerabilities and the other people's work. And it's so important that we not only look at ourselves, but in fighting discouragement, we fight for others. We fight for others. Notice in Ezekiel 22.30, it says, I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap for me, for the land, for the land, so that I would not destroy it, but I found no one. And so at the end of verse 14, we see what he says. He says, fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your houses. Is there any better reason to combat discouragement than that? That it's not simply about us, but it's about our families. The enemy doesn't just want us, he wants your wife. The enemy doesn't just want us, he wants your kids, your sons and your daughters. And to fight against it, to say no, to not allow it, to pull your sword out, to be a man, to be a woman of God in this day and age, to fight for your neighbors, to fight for your brothers and sisters that are in this room that you would join each other, that you would be stand shoulder to shoulder. And one of the greatest things I think in this chapter happens at this moment, as they are positioned, as these soldiers are positioned, guess what happens? The wall isn't done, but they become the wall. 
They become the wall. And not only is this wall a defensive structure anymore, it's an offensive structure. Because you come to the wall, you're going to get stabbed. You come to a weak area, you're going to meet a sword. And so we need to be in the lives of each other, the lives of God's people. Amen? Amen. Remember the Lord, great and awesome. How has Nehemiah dealt with discouragement this far? First of all, we see that he was to ignore it and to keep working, for it's God's work and it's a great work. And then we see the next way he was to combat discouragement is to pray and to set a watch. Watch those things in our own lives. Make our lifestyle a lifestyle of prayer. The next we see that we are not to look at ourselves, but we're to stand in a gap for others and to fight for those who we love. And then I think in verse 14, look at it with me as we close. The great hammer, the great and mighty weapon against discouragement is this. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome. Remember the Lord, great and awesome. There's an equivalent in the New Testament, 2 Timothy 2, chapter 8. I think it's fascinating. It's Paul's last letter. He's about to go. And Timothy, he's telling Timothy, Timothy, don't be timid, don't be scared. You know, watch out for this, watch out for that. Timothy, you know, know, uh, you're weak, do this for your stomach. Timothy, 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 Timothy. And you have to picture Timothy, this young man, has now, uh, Paul is exiting the stage, and now he's to carry on the work, stand in the shower of this man, how discouraging it can become, and how discouraging it could be. And uh, Paul says one of the most awesome things Right there in Second uh, Timothy 2.8, as he's going through everything, it's almost like he stops and he takes a moment, and this is what he tells him. He says, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And it's like, Timothy, all this, yes, but guess what? Remember Jesus. And remember that he's not just a teacher, that he wasn't just a good man who had good morals but that He was the Son of God, that He's risen, that He's sitting on the right hand of the throne of God, that He, because of His blood, has purchased your salvation, that one day you will rule and reign with Him, that by the Holy Spirit He lives in your heart. The God of the universe lives in your heart, Timothy. Do not be afraid. Remember God great and awesome. And what a blow that deals discouragement when we remember all that God has done, when we remember our position that the blood has won, when we remember our future home, how wonderful. Somebody uh, wrote this. It said, "'Tis by thy blood, a mortal lamb, thine armies tread the tempter down. Tis by thy word and powerful name they gain the battles and renown. Rejoice ye heavens, let every star shine with new glories round the sky. Saints, while you sing the heavenly war, raise your deliverer's name on high. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I close. Um, I've been drinking tea lately. And, uh, you know, it's some kind of migraine diet I'm doing. But, you know, something struck me in I guess there's different ways to drink tea. You know, some people, um, you know, let their tea steep. I'm learning all the lingo. <laughs> and, uh, and then they take the bag out. I never do that. I just let it sit there. You know, it gets super strong. Sometimes I'll add another tea bag. I leave the tea bags. I accumulate tea bags throughout the day so that, you know, by the end it's more like chili. 
But, you know, it's interesting because I think sometimes as Christians, we can be like those who dip. And uh, we dip in to the Lord's Word in the morning, but we're done. We dip in on Sunday, but we're done. Where God would have us abide. What happens when that? So much strength is done there as we think and we remember Him. So much strength comes from just sitting in His presence and remembering all He's done. Oh, how dwarf circumstances become in His presence. You guys, in uh, Nehemiah 6.15, it says that they built the wall and they completed it. And unbelievably, it says they did it in 52 days. 52 days. 52 days. My encouragement to you would be, hold on, hold on. Missionary couple was coming home from their service in Africa. They'd been there all their, most of their lives. They're coming home, they were, uh, uh, you know, pushing 70 years old. There's a time when, uh, you know, Theodore Roosevelt was president and he was uh, coming back from a safari. He was on the same boat. And, uh, and here, you know, people celebrated and, they, you know, they got into port and here's this huge celebration, this huge extravaganza for this man who had gone hunting. And, I mean, parades and people and trombones and per- just crazy, you know, kind of a thing. And not one person was there to greet them. Not one person was there to greet them. And so this old missionary couple, they went and they, you know, uh, uh, got their hotel for the night and, you know, were trying to figure out what they were going to do, how they were going to survive from them. And the husband just couldn't take it. And, you know, he just said, I can't believe not one person was out there to greet us. I can't believe we've done all this work for the Lord. I mean, here's a man who, he doesn't even know the Lord, and he gets greeted like this, and I can't believe nobody was here when we got home to greet us. And his wife took her husband's face in her hands, and she just held it so wisely. She said, but honey, we're not home yet. We're not home yet. And I think of the day, and I hope I can say like Paul, I've fought the fight. I've finished the course. And the day where I'll stand before Jesus as we're waiting in line and it's my turn. And I'll take His hands in mine, those precious hands that bear those scars. And I'll look in His eyes and He'll whisper in my ear. I pray He whispers in my ear. Well done. Well done. Well done. If you're here this morning and you have been battling discouragement, God wants to set you free. And we have people who would love to pray with you, but, but, but more than anything, all we really want to do over there is to take your hand and put it in the hand of Jesus. Because truly being set free from discouragement is remembering Him. Maybe it's getting on your face, on the carpets, and remembering Him and all that He's done. I encourage you guys, take communion. If you don't know, the elements are here. It's one thing Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, my body that was broken for you and my blood that was spilled. Do these things. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, Jesus said, he who is not for me is against me and he who does not gather with me scatters. You guys, you don't want to be on the other side. Jesus loves you. He's paid the price. Come to him today.
He's good and He'll do a good work in your heart. Jesus, we love You. We praise You. We thank You. God, I just pray for those in this room who've been battling discouragement. God, I pray for myself. God, we just declare that as Your people, we will remember You this morning. That we will remember You throughout this week. Lord, I pray for those who are weary in the work that You've given them to do. They don't see any results from it. God, I pray that You would strengthen their hands. That they would wait on You and renew their strengths. That they would mount up with wings of eagles. That they would run and not faint. Thank You for Your Word this morning. Move, Holy Spirit, have free reign to do what You would. In Jesus' name, Amen.